You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 31st day of March, 2012. And I'd like to invite all the listeners once again, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can not only find previous episodes of this podcast, but also articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past five years. And now, for all you tweeters out there, there's a new way to keep up with the Corbett Report and all the information that I'm putting out there, and that is my new Twitter account, at Corbett Report. It has taken a number of weeks to finally get that username from whoever was wielding it before, but it has finally been relinquished and I am finally wielding it in my own grasp. So let's make the most of Twitter and let's start using it as another tool for propagating this very important information that we're going over all the time here on CorbettReport.com. And there are a number of different ways to do that. In fact, one idea has already come in from a Twitter user Promethean Post. I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can go and follow Promethean Post yourself. He is uh, definitely tweeting out some very interesting stories. And he had the idea of using my recent pronouncement of my interest in the Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan in particular. And uh, given that Billy Corgan has recently appeared on Infowars.com to have a very in-depth conversation with Alex Jones about society and truth and other such matters, that why don't we start a Twitter campaign to recruit Billy Corgan to come on the Corbett Report as an interview guest? Well, certainly that's one of the ways that we can use our Twitter powers, I suppose, to try to reach out to people like that. I think it might be too early to do that with Billy Corgan, personally. I think he's just been on Alex Jones and probably wants to be more focused on his forthcoming album than talking to quote-unquote conspiracy theorists like myself. But perhaps that's something we can certainly keep up the sleeve for uh, if and when Billy uh, is visiting Japan. Perhaps I can actually do a live interview with him. That would certainly be one for the books. On that note, I think there are a lot of different ways that we can use uh, Twitter campaigns in different ways to raise awareness of different ideas and stories and issues. So as always, I'm open to all suggestions, not only through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, but now also through my Twitter feed. So you can just tweet me at CorbettReport. You can also tweet your suggestions uh, and comments and questions for interview guests. Uh, I will certainly be checking my Twitter feed during the Corbett Report radio broadcast. So if there's anything you'd like to add to the conversation there, you can tweet me and I will attempt to get to your tweets on air. Also, I will attempt to ask questions and other such things that come in through the Twitter feed. So again, lots of different ways that we can use this to interact with each other more and to help to spread the word and information. So once again, at Corbett Report. Also, I would like to bring your attention to a trailer for a forthcoming documentary called Hidden Influence. The trailer just went up just uh, yesterday, so I will put the link in the show notes so that you can go and take a look at this trailer for yourself. It's about the role that the tax-exempt foundations have in shaping society, and it's put together by Richard Heathen, who people might remember interviewed me for his uh, his YouTube channel last year about the Arab Spring, and we had an in-depth conversation that is available on CorbettReport.com, so I'll suggest that you go and refresh yourself with that if you don't remember. His forthcoming in, uh, documentary, Hidden Influence, features a number of guests, including yours truly, James Corbett, so I hope you will go and check that out. It looks like it might be a very interesting documentary indeed. 
And on that note, we have a ton of information to get through today as always, so let's get straight into it. Welcome to episode 224 of the Corbett Report podcast, R2P, or How the Loving Liberals of the Left Learned to Stop Worrying and Embrace the Legal Wars of Imperial Aggression. In fact, it was not too long ago, one presidential term ago to be exact, that the idea of war was universally denounced by the left, and it carried with it all of the associations of death, bloodshed, and destruction that make it a universally despisable action. And yet, somehow, over the course of an Obama presidency, the social engineers have found a way to change that perception. I'm Amy Goodman. To discuss Libya and the latest developments across the Middle East and North Africa, we're joined by two guests. Vijay Prashad is chair in South Asian history and professor of international studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, author of 11 books, most recently, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. He opposes the U.S.-led intervention in Libya. And we're joined by Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan. His blog and forum comment is online at Juan Cole.com. His most recent book is called Engaging the Muslim World. Professor Cole, you support the U.S.-led intervention in Libya. You wrote about it in a piece called An Open Letter to the Left on Libya. Um, Professor Cole is joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lay out your argument for intervention, Professor Cole. Well, intervention is always a, a, a problematic thing, and uh, it, it could go badly wrong, I have to admit, from the outset. But you had a situation in Libya which was pretty peculiar. Uh, the, uh, the uprising was a popular uprising. You, you had crowds coming out into the streets in downtowns in Zawiya, uh, in Zuara, in, in so many of the cities of that country— uh, in Benghazi, you had very substantial numbers of the officer corps uh, defecting to the crowds, uh, declaring for them. Uh, and it, it was uh, chaotic and, and it, it was uh, not well coordinated, uh, but it was nationwide. Uh, and I would estimate that at its height, uh, the people had thrown off uh, Gaddafi's rule in something on the order of 80 to 90 percent of the country. Uh, and mostly, uh, it was done nonviolently. Uh, and then the, the Gaddafi sons, who command these special forces and the tank commanders, made uh, an attempt to put this down. And they did it in the most brutal way possible. They, they mounted tanks, 30, 40, 50 tanks, uh, sent them into the downtowns of places like Zawiya, and they just shelled civilian crowds, protesters. They shelled buildings. They, they, uh, they brutalized people uh, over days uh, until they, uh, they scared everybody and, and, and put them down. And then they sent secret police around to, to round up uh, alleged uh, ringleaders and, and, and reestablish secret police rule. And they did this in town after town after town. And then they started rolling the tanks to, to the... Uh, uh, to the east, and they were on the verge of taking the rebel stronghold, uh, Benghazi. Uh, and, and there certainly would have been a massacre there in the same way that there was in Zawiya, uh, if, if it hadn't been stopped at the last moment by United Nations allies. 
Mr. Obama not making an Oval Office address to the nation. Mr. Obama repeatedly stressing the limited nature of U.S. involvement, promising there will be no ground troops in Libya, no matter what, leaving the overall question of an intervention until a U.N. Security Council resolution could be passed on the subject and then actually following the U.N. Security Council's decision. The White House overtly acknowledging and making widely known that it sees France and Britain and Arab countries as in the lead here. The U.S. waiting until there was a clear international consensus before doing anything on our own and letting other nations make this more their war than our war. Ever since this operation began, there have been many questions and we've been among those asking them. What's our ultimate goal here? Is President Obama doing the same thing President Bush did, but not by not seeking authorization for the war? Is this a split the baby approach that cannot work? Did we go in too late or did we rush in too early without thinking it through? Now, I think these are all legitimate questions, but don't worry, tonight I have the answers. First, let me start by saying that after much deliberation, I have concluded that President Obama took the right course of action. Sigh. Yes, friends, the exact same broadcasters who just a few short years ago were railing against the wars of imperial aggression across the globe taking place under the George W. Bush administration are suddenly all on board when it's the Barack H. Obama administration doing the exact same thing. And the Senk Uyghurs and the Rachel Maddows and even the Amy Goodmans will be happy to parrot all of the lies and justifications for such a war coming out of the White House. And suddenly all of their listeners and viewers are being asked to believe that the dropping of bombs on the heads of civilians is in fact actually a wonderful thing that's being done for freedom and democracy and all of those things that under President Bush were self-evidently lies. But under Barack H. Obama, it must be true. Yes, I see it now. I see it so clearly. It's bombs for peace. It's destruction for creation. It's arms for disarmament. You know... Actually, this sounds like something that I've heard before. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. Well, yeah, there was that. But I'm thinking of something a little bit further back in time. My fellow Americans, today our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. We act to protect thousands of innocent people in Kosovo from a mounting military offensive. We act to prevent a wider war, to defuse a powder keg at the heart of Europe that has exploded twice before in this century with catastrophic results. And we act to stand united with our allies for peace. By acting now, we are upholding our values, protecting our interests, and advancing the cause of peace. Yeah, it's along those lines, but still further back. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day, because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Well, how could we forget that one? But no, there's still something a little bit further back in history that I recall along these lines of bombs for peace and all of that. Oh, yeah. 
I remember now. The Ministry of Truth, many true in you speak, was startlingly different from any other object in sight. It was an enormous pyramidal structure of glittering white concrete, soaring up terrace after terrace, three hundred meters into the air. From where Winston stood it was just possible to read, picked out on its white face in elegant lettering, the three slogans of the party. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Well, all kidding aside, there certainly is something to be said for the Orwellian feats of doublethink that are required to make an entire group of people who otherwise would be totally, vehemently, and diabolically opposed to such military interventionism and to uh, take that class and turn them absolutely into pro-war warmongers, hawks, if you will, that uh, there certainly is something underlying this. There is a philosophy, there is an underlying ideology here, and unfortunately, what I'm about to show you today is that this is all leading in an inevitable historical progression, and I hope to be able to lay out the breadcrumbs in a way that you'll be able to follow the path and see where this is all going, and I don't think it takes, it doesn't take a Tesla to put it, the, uh, the pieces together and to really understand what's going on here. And they do call themselves the progressive liberal left, and perhaps there is something to be said for that, because there is, I suppose, one way in which we can see some sort of progression in the course of Western civilization over the past millennia or so, because certainly a thousand years ago, the kings and queens who presumed to be able to rule over their their subjects with an iron fist and presumed to have the right to do so because it was given to them by God, didn't really have to have much of a justification at all for why they were sending a nation to war. They basically just had to say, uh, rally around me, rally around the king or queen and your country and fight and die. And many people did go off to fight and die in such wars of, well, quite open imperial aggression. But in our day and age, in our enlightened era of the progressive Western liberal democracies, we need more of a justification. So now they have to, uh, well, play a little mind games and little rhetorical tricks. And one really wonders if it's really all that much more sophisticated than just asking people to die for a king and country. But at any rate, there is certainly an underlying philosophy here. So let's start prying that apart and taking a look at the history of how this idea came to be perpetuated through the liberal left mouthpieces in the phony left-right paradigm that only serves to perpetuate the eternal, eternal wars of conquest around the globe for the NATO imperial forces and those that are puppeteering them. And you'll notice the wars don't change, the wars don't stop, the wars just change locations and there's different faces on the boogeymen, but they keep going on no matter left or right. Just another example, if any were needed, that the left and right is a complete and total charade. But if you're listening to this broadcast podcast, you already know that. At any rate, let's start breaking down the history of the underlying principle of this newfound humanitarian love for dropping bombs on innocent civilians. And this goes back to something that has really taken shape in international jurisprudence over the past decade. It is called Responsibility to Protect, and it has been given the cute little moniker R2P. Oh, what could possibly be bad that sounds like a droid from a Star Wars film? It's just such a loving liberal philosophy. Well, as many of you might already know, I did have Pepe Escobar on the program last week to start talking about this. So let's just take a short excerpt from that interview where Pepe breaks down the, the pedigree of this idea, how it came about, and who is behind it. 
Yes. Uh, look, uh, R2P became famous all over the world, of course, because of Libya last year. But this is a long story. This is a 10-year-long story. Probably many people don't remember that. So I think it's important to come back to 2001 when the original concept was actually masterminded by this uh, fabulously named International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. This was actually a panel. It uh, was sponsored by the Canadian government, by the way, with some foundations backing it. And the leader was uh, definitely not a warmonger, was a very, uh, very good guy put it this uh, simply, uh, the former Australian Prime Minister, Gareth Evans. So the idea, the original idea was, uh, I quote them, international community had a moral duty to, in terms of humanitarian intervention. So the original idea, of course, was altruistic. Uh, they were probably thinking about Rwanda. They were probably thinking about the Congo. They were probably even thinking about the Khmer Rouge in the 70s, right? So, but let's see how this evolved in the long run. In 2004, this original idea was already being debated at the UN. And Kofi Annan established a panel to debate it. Uh, and the Security Council was uh, very interested in authorizing, I quote them, the Security Council, military intervention only as a last resort. So they kept the original idea of that uh, international commission that, that, that we mentioned a while ago. Uh, and very, very important, military intervention, like we saw in Libya last year, only as a last resort. Uh, then we get to 2005, very important when the UN General Assembly, at the time 191 countries, they endorsed a resolution that would support R2P. But there was no vote about it, okay? Very important, always considering that no military intervention was in the cards. And finally, in 2006, the UN Security Council, only the 15, the, the five plus the other non-permanent members, they voted a resolution number 1674. And this resolution was uh, uh, basically the, the core of R2P, involved in protecting civilians in armed conflict and protecting civilians from, I quote them again, genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. So if we look at this timeline, it's, uh, it looks very altruistic no? and very humanitarian. But the thing is how major foreign powers were going to use this uh, carte blanche from the UN Security Council. This didn't happen in 2007, 2008, 2009, but it happened in 2010, but it happened in 2011. This didn't happen, for instance, in late 2008, early 2009, when Israel invaded Gaza, bombed Gaza, and killed at least documented 1,400 people, including a lot of women and children. Nobody talked about R2P. But last year, with uh, how, can I, how can I describe Libya? With the, that mix of uh, forced intervention, uh, indigenous movement, uh, military coup, you name it, fill in the blanks. 
they saw an opening. And when I say they, I mean especially three of the five permanent members of, of the Security Council, the U.S., Britain, and France. Uh, we have analyzed extensively, including you, James, in your, in your reports, all the hidden reasons and all the different agendas for intervention in Libya. But in the case of applying R2P, there were three people who were instrumental in uh, regimenting the U.S. support and uh, trying to convince other members that this was uh, the way to go in uh, 2011. I call them the three graces. Hillary Clinton, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice, and Special Advisor to President Obama, Samantha Power, who was very close to Sergio Vieira de Mello when Sergio was uh, at the U.N. Sergio was... Uh, the special envoy to Iraq when he was killed in, uh, in Baghdad in 2003. So, these three graces, they organized uh, the media push, uh, the one message for the Obama administration, uh, the talks between the U.S., uh, the European special Britain and France, and other members of the, of the Security Council at the time, especially Arab members, and of course the Persian Gulf monarchies. So they sold the world the idea that they were intervened, they will they would intervene in Libya to prevent a humanitarian massacre that was not documented and we later discovered was not happening. The notion that major powers like the US or even lesser powers like Britain and France, that they uh, conduct their foreign policy based on humanitarian principles is an absolute joke. And the proof was last year in Libya. Well, excellently said, excellently documented. And I think if you take nothing else out of today's episode, it should simply be that little history lesson on where this idea comes from and what's really behind it and how it really played out in Libya. But let's continue digging in and getting some more of this on the record, as it were. And, of course, I will throw in a link in the documentation section for today's episode at CorbettReport.com to that document that Pepe Escobar was talking about there, the Report of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, issued in December of 2001 and entitled, simply enough, the responsibility to protect. And there you'll be able to read the entire document for yourself, including the synopsis, which basically lays out the justification, so-called, quote-unquote, for what is actually uh, being played out in places like Libya now, and uh, and is threatened to be taking place in places like Libya, uh, Syria very soon. So it, reading from that synopsis, we find out that the responsibility to protect consists of core principles, and under the section entitled Basic Principles, we read that state sovereignty implies responsibility, and the primary responsibility for the protection of its peoples lies with the state itself. Well, that seems fairly reasonable. And from there, we find out that another basic principle is that where a population is suffering serious harm as a result of internal war, insurgency, repression, or state failure, and the state in question is unwilling or unable to halt or avert it, the principle of non-intervention yields to the international responsibility to protect. 
which seems to beg the question of where this international responsibility to protect really gains its authority from. But don't worry, that's answered in the next section of this synopsis entitled Foundations, where it goes through the foundations of where this international responsibility to protect is derived. And it reads, The foundations of the responsibility to protect, as a guiding principle for the international community of states, lie in a. Obligations inherent in the concept of sovereignty. b. The responsibility of the Security Council, under Article 24 of the UN Charter, for the maintenance of international peace and security. c. Specific legal obligations under human rights and human protection declarations, covenants and treaties, international humanitarian law, and national law. And d. The developing practice of states, regional organizations, and the Security Council itself. Which still tends to beg the question if you ask me, because once again, they are claiming to derive this authority to act internationally and transgress the boundaries of a sovereign nation based on the fact that the Security Council is given a UN charter for the maintenance of international peace and security. I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly a, sig a signatory to that document, so I'm not sure why it should have anything to do with me or any nation presuming to be able to represent me. And since I have no sway or say over the Security Council or its actions in any way, shape, or form, it doesn't seem like a very good system of world governance to me. But moving on in this document, let's find out what the, uh, the elements of this are. What are the actual ramifications of this responsibility to protect? And there are threefold given in this document. A, the responsibility to prevent to address both the root causes and direct causes of internal conflict and other man-made crises putting populations at risk, b. the responsibility to react, to respond to situations of compelling human need with appropriate measures, which may include coercive measures like sanctions and international prosecution, and in extreme cases, military intervention, c. the responsibility to rebuild, to provide particularly after a military intervention, full assistance with recovery, reconstruction, and reconciliation, addressing the causes of the harm the intervention was designed to halt or avert. So, we have hitherto been dancing around the issue, but here it's presented quite plainly that military intervention is certainly on the table and within the scope of this responsibility to protect, however sugar-coated in mealy-mouthed political phrases about humanitarian concern it may be, ultimately what this is attempting to do is to derive authority for the UN Security Council to authorize the attack and the destruction of any government that the UN Security Council deems to be incapable or unwilling of protecting its citizens. And of course that raises the question of, well, who gets to decide and how do they get to decide? Well, don't worry, this document also sets out the just cause threshold to uh, to set the bar for military intervention. And it reads, military intervention for human protection purposes is an exceptional and extraordinary measure. To be warranted, there must be serious and irreparable harm occurring to human beings or imminently likely to occur of the following kind. A, large-scale loss of life, actual or apprehended, with genocidal intent or not, which is the product either of deliberate state action or state neglect or inability to act, or a failed state situation, or b. large-scale ethnic cleansing, actual or apprehended, whether carried out by killing, forced expulsion, acts of terror, or rape. 
And so it was last year when we saw UN Security Council Resolution 1973 immediately transformed from the authorization to create a no-fly zone into a full-scale bombardment in the name of regime change that the architects of that decided to cover their assets, as it were, by also throwing in those ridiculous Viagra-fueled rape charges against Gaddafi, but more on the specific Libya situation and how this all played out 10 years later, like a nightmare for the people of Libya, a nightmare that we should note, and we have to note at every possible opportunity, is still ongoing. Not that you would know it by listening to the same progressive left political voices who were all gung-ho and on board with the bombardment of Libya. No, now things in Libya are descending into even further pits of hell, and it is still a very volatile situation, and much, much worse, demonstrably worse, for many of the civilians there. But let's not actually concentrate on that. The actual mission has been accomplished, so to speak, and the cronies have been put into power over the Libyan puppet state that presumes to rule over the very fractious tribal states that uh, that really are really independent nations within Libya. But again, perhaps that's complicating things too much, and it's absolutely impossible for me to remain impartial while commenting commenting on this document, this ICISS report from December 2001, which again laid out in the most beautiful language about protecting civilians and humanitarian intervention, the ways in which, unfortunately, 10 years later, it would be applied to the wholesale destruction of a country and the overturning of a leader. And again, it doesn't mean that I have to be on board and supportive of Gaddafi or what he was doing or Assad or anything else like that, just because you are opposed to the idea that states can come in and bomb to smithereens and an independent state. Uh, it does not mean that you are in favor of that state's government. Obviously, as someone who has strong leanings towards voluntarism, I am against every government. So certainly I'm not supporting people like Gaddafi or Assad. But again, that's the false dialectic by which this works. If you're not for dropping bombs on Libya, then you must be for Gaddafi, as if there is no other possible alternative. But again, as I say, it's impossible for me to refrain from editorial interjection when trying to lay out this responsibility to protect thesis as it's been developed. So let's turn to a commentator on this issue and one who I suppose should know what he's talking about. Because unfortunately, as Pepe Escobar indicates in that recent interview, this is an idea with a significant Canadian pedigree behind it. And unfortunately, it's very much like the Canadian involvement in the UN peacekeeping peacekeeping idea. And uh, although the Canadian government likes to pay for propaganda advertising on Canadian TV about Heritage Minutes uh, touting these great moments in Canadian history, including, of course, the creation of the UN peacekeepers as part of a a Canadian-led initiative at the United Nations, while leaving out the fact that the peacekeepers have been involved time and time again with rape, pillaging, pimping, and kidnap of people in place after place around the globe that they are sent to protect. But leaving that aside... At any rate, yes, Canadians are also very much behind this responsibility to protect doctrine, this wielding of imperial might and conquest in the name of soft, loving, liberal humanitarian intervention. And so it is that we're going to listen to an excerpt from a Joan B. Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice Distinguished Lecture Series by the distinguished lecturer Lloyd Axworthy, the former Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Jean Chrétien Canadian government and the current 
president of the University of Winnipeg and <coughs> a former Bilderberg attendee, surprise, surprise, delivering a 2005 address about this responsibility to protect doctrine and why it is so important for the international community to get on board with it. But then we hit Kosovo. And we knew all the reports coming in. You, know, you saw the kind of stuff that ethnic cleansing was taking place, no question about it. And we danced the diplomatic minuets. We had meetings all over the place. And, and we hit the question that at the Security Council, we couldn't get an agreement to intervene because the Russians were going to veto. So you know the rest of the story. We went to NATO and we, we got engaged. And, and eventually we, we got stopped the killing and slowly and fitfully have started the rebuilding of that country from the kind of divisions that the boundaries had created for so long. I didn't like what happened. I, we committed. I, I was asked by the Prime Minister to recommend to my cabinet whether we should get involved or not, and we did. Because I felt that, that I couldn't, with any honesty, stand up for a human security principle if I wasn't prepared to ultimately be faced with the choice of the ultimate use of force to protect people. You know, it's, it's like a cop on the beat. The worst time to come is when you're actually, when they call your cards, and are you prepared to use it? But I didn't like the fact there were no rules. The decision was ad hoc. It bypassed the United Nations, so there wasn't a collective judgment. It did go into a NATO, which was, a, after all, a military alliance. And so I established a commission called Commission on Intervention and Sovereignty with the, with the approval of the Secretary General, and we got a number of countries involved, and we sort of a number of major U.S. foundations helped support the research. I think it was, a, it was a real attempt to come to grips, going back to what I talked about, trying to get a hold of a new idea about how it could work in a way that would refurbish and rehabilitate uh, the somewhat tattered position that the U UN and we had all fallen into. And I'd say to you now that that, to me, was perhaps, if I look back, one of the things that I was able to do that I, I think still carries some significance because what happened is that the notion of human security has morphed into a new concept called the responsibility to protect. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the commission looked at this and said, you know, if you, if you go back into the roots of government, go back into 18th century sort of philosophes in France or Great Britain in this country who were looking at the role of the state and the relation of the individual to it, one primary purpose, and that's the protection of its citizens. And what they're saying is, you know, how do we extend that fundamental responsibility to protect into a global domain? How do you do it? They came up with a, a formula. And that said, if a state, if a government, is incapable of protecting its own people, just doesn't have the wherewithal, it's a failed state, it's a, you know, it runs the presidential palace and there's nothing beyond it. If there's a failed state, or if the government itself won't protect its people, or if the government of the state itself is the predator, is the one that's actually doing the killing or the cleansing, then the international community has a responsibility to protect. We turn sovereignty on its head. We basically say sovereignty is not a prerogative of the state. It's an earned right to provide protection for the citizens of a state. And if it doesn't fulfill that responsibility, that mandate, 
then there has to be some way of ensuring the protection takes place. And this doesn't mean some willful, capricious, let's walk in where we want to go. It means setting up a very high threshold of test. It's got to be genocide. It's got to be real murder. It's got to be real cleansing. It doesn't go in because you sort of make up reasons for it. There's got to be a real severe test, a clear, objective, hard-nosed test. There's got to be a collective decision-making on it. You also have to make sure that the means are appropriate to the, to the crime. Well, if you have the stomach for it, of course, there will be a link in the show notes so you can go and watch that full lecture for yourself on YouTube or uh, just listen to it if you can't stomach actually watching it. But at any rate, we have heard the case from that side, as it were, the case to be made for this humanitarian intervention, which again sounds so wonderful. But again, we have to question whether this actually squares with the version of reality that we have seen play out in the previous year. So we heard Mr. Axworthy talking about the high threshold for military intervention, that it has to be genocide, there has to be something happening on the ground that we can demonstrate and show that there is this urgent pressing need for military intervention before it will ever take place. Well, does that square with what really happened in Libya last year? The process that launched the intervention was begun by a coalition of 70 non-governmental organizations, which issued a joint letter urging the UN to suspend Libya from the Human Rights Council and for the Security Council to invoke the so-called Responsibility to Protect principle in protecting the Libyan people from alleged atrocities being committed by the Libyan government. In a special session on the issue on February 25th, the UN Human Rights Council adopted a resolution affirming the NGO's recommendations. The resolution was adopted without a vote. The Security Council immediately passed resolutions 1970 and 1973, authorizing the establishment of a no-fly zone on Libyan military aviation for the protection of civilians and the delivery of humanitarian assistance in Libya. Three days later, using the resolution as its justification, the US, UK, and France began bombing the population of Libya. Meanwhile, the International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, began working on the legal basis for the invasion. He drafted the request for the court's judges to issue an arrest warrant for Gaddafi for crimes against humanity. Although NATO forces were already engaged in an invasion of the country on the basis of undocumented allegations by a group of NGOs, Moreno Ocampo's request was not issued until May 16th. On June 28th, the day after the judges agreed to issue the warrant, Moreno Ocampo participated in a press conference in which one reporter asked about the evidence that Gaddafi had ever engaged in the atrocities he was accused of. My question is, could you give me some example of your, uh, you offered to the international crime courts? How many people have been, uh, been killed and in which town, in which site, and uh, what kind of uh, the crimes he has ever done in your uh, uh, investigation? So um, uh, we always know the facts always can make the people convinced. So thank you so much. I advise you to read the application of the Prosecutor's Office, many pages, I think it was 77 pages. We describe in detail the facts, most of it is public, and the judges also decided analyzing the evidence. So, of course, we are prosecutors and judges, so we rely on facts. So we prove the crimes. That's what we did. Although the document that Moreno Ocampo urges the public to read to understand the evidence of Gaddafi's crimes is indeed public and is 77 pages long, the version available to the public has been heavily redacted. 
In fact, of the 77 pages, 53 of them have been redacted, comprising the entire section of the document dealing with the evidence for the charges themselves. As French analyst Thierry Masson points out in a recent article for the Voltaire Network republished on Global Research, this is not the first time Gaddafi has been vilified on the international stage, only to be exonerated later. As Maison notes, a German trial which pinned the 1986 bombing of a discotheque in Berlin on Gaddafi and led to a U.S. strike on his palace that resulted in the death of his daughter and 49 other civilians later turned out to have been a false conviction set up by a CIA agent, and the bomber himself turned out to be a Mossad agent. In the case of the 1988 Lockerbie bombing, the chief Scottish investigator later admitted that the main piece of evidence in the case, the bomb timer, had actually been planted at the scene by a CIA agent, the expert who examined the timer admitted to manufacturing it himself, and the star witness who connected the bomb to the suitcase later admitted having received $2 million to lie on the stand. Now, as Michelle Chosodowski of the Center for Research on Globalization has pointed out, the NATO forces that have been bombing Libya relentlessly for the last seven months in the name of protecting the civilian population there are going to extract Libya's wealth as the spoils of war by urging the new Libyan government to pay for the reconstruction of the country's shattered infrastructure through debt issued at the Libyan people's expense owed to the very NATO powers who destroyed that infrastructure in the first place. And Mr. Chazowski, do you believe that NATO and the U.S. will now bring in their engineering firms such as Halliburton, Baker Hughes, and security firms such as Dynacorp and Blackwater to, to rebuild the country as they did with Iraq? Well, what I, I, I think the scenario is to rebuild this country on borrowed money. In other words, what we're going to have are the, the donors and creditors will, will come in and say, we will lend you money. But in fact... Uh, all the money, all the financial assets of Libya have been have been confiscated. Libya doesn't need any, wouldn't have needed anybody to come and rebuild. But the irony is that you go into a country, you bomb its infrastructure. I mean, we're talking about water, food distribution, roads, tra uh, transportation, uh, uh, health, educational facilities, government buildings. 10,000 strike sorties, and then you come, it's a very cynical uh, uh, statement, we come in and we will rebuild what we have destroyed. We will reconstruct what we have destroyed. And that destruction was the direct result of um, United Nations Security Council 1973, uh, or at least its interpretation, which then gave NATO the green light to go and bomb the country. And it will be done with borrowed money. And, of course, the, the security firms, the mercenary companies, the big construction firms will come in. And, of course, part of this agenda is ultimately the privatization of Libya's oil reserves, which constitute approximately 3.5 percent of global oil reserves. Well, I think given that, it's pretty safe to say that Mr. Axworthy's speech was a load of poppycock, to use the broadcast-friendly term. But again, I don't think that should come as a surprise to us, especially when we consider that it is his side of the political spectrum that has openly and wantonly acknowledged that the killing of 500,000 Iraqi children in the pursuit of the change of regimes of Saddam Hussein that the U.S. government suddenly found it was no longer in favor of was absolutely worth it. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? 
I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. So I think we should take the humanitarian pronouncements of these loving liberal progressive left politicians with a slight pinch of salt when they talk about humanitarian intervention in the name of saving the very types of children that they were killing in other countries for the gross misfortune of having been born in the wrong place at the wrong time. But let's uh, let's examine this further then. This is demonstrably a load of BS, and it is being propagated and promoted so heavily that there must be some greater agenda behind this. What is the real endgame of this responsibility to protect doctrine and the establishment in international law of this idea that there can be this mechanism for moving in against other countries? Well, certainly, I think it doesn't take, uh, again, it doesn't take a Tesla to put the pieces together. We don't have to scratch the surface very hard to figure out what's going on here. And once again, we can turn back to that ICISS report from December 2001, where it was laid out in quite in black and white where the authority for all of this is coming from and why and how these types of decisions are going to be made as they were last year with the Security Council. We get this from a section of that synopsis that we were reading earlier called Right Authority, where it says... There is no better or more appropriate body than the United Nations Security Council to authorize military intervention for humanitarian protection purposes. The task is not to find alternatives to the Security Council as a source of authority, but to make the Security Council work better than it has. Security Council authorization should in all cases be sought prior to any military intervention action being carried out. Those calling for an intervention should formally request such authorization or have the Council raise the matter on its own initiative or have the Secretary-General raise it under Article 99 of the UN Charter. The Security Council should deal promptly with any request for authority to intervene where there are allegations of large-scale loss of human life or ethnic cleansing. It should in this context seek adequate verification of facts or conditions on the ground that might support a military intervention. The permanent five members of the Security Council should agree not to apply their veto power in matters where their vital state interests are not involved to obstruct the passage of resolutions authorizing military intervention for human protection purposes for which there is otherwise majority support. Again, you can go and continue reading that section of that synopsis of the document, but That's a pretty staggering thing to put in a document like that, that the five Security Council permanent members should give up, relinquish their right to use their veto power in cases where their national state interests are not involved in in, in objecting to the military intervention in another country. That's that's a pretty putting the gauntlet down on the table. And uh, that was uh, one that was recently picked up, as we'll get into shortly. But where am I going with this? Am I suggesting that the idea of the establishment of this responsibility to protect doctrine is nothing other than a mask for world governmental structures to be formalized and to be strengthened? Wow, what a conspiracy theory. No one's going to believe that. In other words, the whole point about R2P, responsibility to protect, was that we were basically redefining the notion of the boundary, the sovereignty. Saying it doesn't, it doesn't stop ceasing. We're not talking about some kind of fantasy of world government. We're saying, of course, states have to exercise their responsibilities. But if they don't or can't or won't or are themselves or they are the violator of the basic rights of people to live in a freedom from fear 
and the right to exist, then somebody has to do it. But it's got to be done by rules of law and by proper process and by making sure that it is not an abuse of exercise. And this is not some abstract, some academic exercise of hypothetical simulations. Boy, this is real. Because the issue of intervention, of when and who and how goes in to influence the affairs of another state, is probably the most critical and difficult conundrum that we face in this new century of ours. And it's not easy to answer. I'm not saying that I'm coming up here with a fully described and widespread consensus on what we're going to go. It is debatable. There are still many of those who will simply say, we should exercise no restraints on our sovereignty. We have a right to do what we want within our own boundaries. We have a right to do what we need to do to protect ourselves on our own boundaries, which is where the whole issue of boundaries gets tied in with this issue of the borderless world that we live in. It's also, and I just give you this caution, because I think it's important for an institute such as this and this university, which is clearly committed in terms of its uh, willingness to engage in, in these issues. The responsibility to protect is the core principle behind the high panel on UN reform that was tabled just in December, which will form the basis of a major debate about the reformation of the United Nations system in the future. We finally recognized you know, that the, that old organization that was the, the brainchild of the Second World War, of Franklin Roosevelt and those who put the charter together, has served a purpose, but it wasn't dealing with the world the way it was. It lost enormous credibility over Iraq. It has been besieged by challenges of corruption in the oil for food program. In other words, it's, you know, it's an organization that needs some fresh air. And at the very core of it, at the very center of that discussion that the Secretary General is launching, in which all the world leaders will come to New York in five months, in, in the September of this, year, of this year, the responsibility to protect is a principle that will be debated deeply. And the question is, are we ready to do something about it? What does it mean, for example? Well, let me give you some examples of very specific consequences. If you, if you even begin to take it as at least being partly credible, then it does lead to some very significant reforms. It means, for example, and I say this to an American audience, it means saying that the big powers of the Security Council, the P5, no longer should be able to use a veto when it comes to humanitarian intervention. Why the hell should China or why should the United States be able to do that? No, I don't, I'm not trying to be blasphemous, I'm just simply saying, why, in the case of Kosovo, should Russia and China have been in the way of a proper UN-organized involvement to stop the killing and cleansing of th tens of thousands of people? Well, it doesn't get put much more plainly than that. And you can go continue li listening to that lecture where he goes on to talk about the International Criminal Court and how it's the great inst international body and it's just the perfect choice for trying terrorism cases and the like because obviously it, any transnational non-state actors have to be put before an international court. So it all just makes sense and all the pieces fit together so well since we're living in this age of terror anyway. So why is the U.S. opposing all of these world governmental structures? It's just such a wonderful thing that's going to make everyone in the world happy. Let's all sing, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. 
Yes, R2P as a false front for world governmental structures. I don't think one has to go out on a limb to put those pieces together, since many of the proponents are quite openly calling for those very world governmental structures. So where does that leave us in actually opposing this agenda? Well, to a certain extent, doesn't that leave us waiting on the five Security Council permanent members to actually use their might, their veto power, to go against this doctrine and to make sure that this does not get used again? Well, in that regard, that is certainly something that the Council on Foreign Relations is spending a lot of its time and media attention fretting about these days. The double veto by Russia and China of a proposed resolution to end the escalating crisis in Syria has guaranteed that this crisis will not only continue, but it's also given the green light to Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad to continue the crackdown on civilian populations that has already led to the deaths of more than 5,000 people. In the aftermath of this double veto, we've learned four things. The first is that the role of the Arab League in the international community is becoming increasingly important. For a long time, the Arab League never took a strong position, particularly against its member, its own member states. Uh, but in, over the last year, we've seen a huge surge in activism uh, within the Arab League uh, that's been quite courageous and is a welcome development. First, we saw the Arab League take on Muammar Gaddafi and call for his elimination uh, from power. Um, that was a, a huge step to take uh, action against another Arab leader. On the other hand, Gaddafi didn't have many friends. In this case, the Arab League is actually taking action in proposing uh, an orderly transition to a new government in Syria. Syria, a country that is at the heart of the Arab world uh, and is strategically located. This bodes well for the future and for the future in, uh, of, of initiatives in, in terms of peacemaking and political liberalization coming out of the Arab world. And it's no doubt at least partly a function of the Arab Spring and the new currents blowing in that region. The second thing uh, that we realized from this crisis is that uh, the Security Council has some significant structural uh, flaws. And those flaws are actually built into the security, uh, the, to the Charter of the United Nations. And in particular, when one, or in this case, two permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, is opposed to firm action or considers that it has a national security interest uh, in, in a particular issue, it is impossible for the Security Council to act effectively as a concert. Uh, and we've certainly seen that uh, in this case. Uh, uh, Russia and China are both have, both have a neuralgia against any form of intervention that might uh, strike against the sovereignty uh, of a member state government of the United Nations. Uh, and both of those countries are actually in the midst of political transitions, and they don't want to give any license to the international community to have a say in what goes on in the internal affairs of other countries. And that's what's going on in this case. The third thing that we've found from this uh, crisis is that the doctrine of the responsibility to protect is in major crisis. Uh, now, the responsibility to protect says, in effect, that each government has a responsibility to prevent atrocities from, being take, from taking place uh, on its territory or, indeed, from committing those atrocities 
itself. And when it fails to live up to that responsibility, that obligation devolves to the international community. Now, in the wake of the Libya intervention, many people thought, here it's been validated. From now on, this is going to be some, uh, a norm that the international community lives up to. But unfortunately, Russia and China got buyer's remorse in the aftermath of the Libya crisis. Uh, they saw the West, in, including the United States, taking a resolution calling for all necessary means to protect civilians and turning that into a license for a regime change. And they're bound and determined that this should not happen in the case of Syria. The final thing that we've learned is that, or the final thing that, that has emerged from this crisis is that the Obama administration faces an excruciating dilemma because President Obama has made the prevention of atrocities one of the highlights of his foreign policy and indeed has called it a core national security concern. Last year, he ordered his uh, eight cabinet agencies to figure out how the United States can get better at anticipating atrocities and preventing them before they occur uh, and, and, or acting against, uh, acting in response to them in their aftermath. In this case, the president has already declared that uh, Assad in Syria has lost his legitimacy to govern, the same language he used in discussing Gaddafi last year. The question is, what is the United States going to do about it? There's really only one option if uh, President Obama wants to get more coercive, particularly if we're talking military force, and that is to look at the model that the United States adopted in Kosovo in 1999. And that was to organize, in this case through NATO, a surrogate force, uh, form of multilateral legitimacy to intervene into uh, that country. In that case, it was to prevent Slobodan Milosevic from continuing uh, atrocities against Kosovars. The question is, is he willing to do the same thing in a very dangerous part of the world, Syria, by bringing together either NATO or a coalition of allied countries, including hopefully some members of the Arab League? That would be a huge step and one uh, in an election year that would create major questions uh, about whether the United States and the United States public support such a move. But it's one that the president is facing right now. Yes, Russia and China have used their veto power to stop the what looked like the inevitable progression towards military intervention in Syria. And to some extent, thank heavens that they did, because absolutely we are very much on the brink of a repeat of the Libya situation in Syria, as people who have been listening to my work for any length of time undoubtedly already understand, and as the Russian and Chinese governments undoubtedly understand. But I, once again, I don't think that this can possibly be the ultimate solution to what we're facing. We can't just put our faith in Russia and China being some sort of benevolent counterbalance to the malevolent NATO power bloc that is trying to use this doctrine as a stick to go after those states that it wants to carve up on the geopolitical chessboard. There has to be another way out. And ultimately, once again, I think this comes to us at our level, doing what we can to withdraw ourselves from the system. Because once again, we are in this beast system, this NATO warmonger imperialist aggression system that's dropping bombs in our name, and more specifically, using our tax dollars to do so. And it rests on us supporting the corporations and the banking structure and all of these things that have been set up to feed on us 
as it uses our wealth to expand itself around the globe. And again, it's a big interlocking system, and we are a part of that system. And we may not have the ability to decide what happens or doesn't happen at the UN Security Council, and we may not be able to affect things on that level in an immediate manner. But we can control what we do with our time, with our resources and our attention, and we can start to withdraw ourselves and boycott that system that is the problem. And when we start to take our power out of the national governments that are presuming to have the authority to tell us what to do and delegitimize that process that inherently delegitimizes the international process. And once again, this isn't going to be a simple solution. It's not going to be a silver bullet, and there's not going to be an easy answer to any of this. We're not going to be able to topple this system of increasingly global control that's been being set up for decades, if not generations now, just with the flip of a switch. But again, we have to start getting off the system and off of the grid and stop feeding it with our time, money, and resources, because ultimately that is what is feeding this system and that is what is ultimately underlying the perpetuation of these wars. So in some sense, if you find yourself agreeing with me on this matter, it really doesn't matter if we are the only two people in the world who show, share this viewpoint. It doesn't matter how many people on the otherwise anti-war, quote-unquote, left suddenly find themselves in the thrall of the Obama administration and find themselves all gung-ho for dropping bombs on the brown people in, in when it's done in the name of humanitarian intervention. It doesn't matter if you're the only person on the planet who believes that this is all wrong. Anyone who is in any sort of minority but still has the truth is still in the moral majority. And we have to spread this information to others and withdraw ourselves from the system that is doing this. And on that note, that's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Let me just close with an old, uh, going back to the university, I acquired a new technology myself. I learned to read. And uh, I went back to a 1948 inaugural address by a well-known Canadian economist called Harold Innes, head of the Royal Society, which is a group of scientists and academics. And I was struck by the title, it was called Minerva's Owl. Probably some of the philosophers in the room know what Minerva's Owl is about, but there's an old philosophical saying that Minerva's Owl flies at dusk, which means once you see it, it's too late to do anything about it, that you're responding and reacting too late. You're not in the front of the curve, you're behind the curve. And I think we're increasingly guilty of watching Minerva's owl fly at dusk. The real issue, and I think maybe it starts in places like this, is when can we see Minerva's owl fly at dawn? That's the time when we begin to meld and morph from human security to responsibility protect to a global public domain. Thank you very much.